You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to Prehistories with me, your host, Kim Bidolf. On this podcast, we do two things. We use fiction books as an excuse to talk about the archaeology behind them, but also explore what fiction can do that pure archaeology can't. Archaeology relies on evidence, and necessarily any picture you paint relying solely on evidence, especially of the remote past, will be incomplete. So a bit of imagination can take us to places where we can paint a more detailed, many-layered picture. Authors are adept at world building, so maybe they can teach us archaeologists something. Now, regular listeners will know how Eurocentric the books have been on here, but I have good news. I've found a whole Facebook group of prehistoric writers, would you believe? And there are loads of really recent books set all around the world. So I'm really looking forward to reading those and finding people to talk to about them. As usual, any recommendations that you have of books that you've read that you want me to read um, and to feature on the podcast, send them to me on Twitter. My handle is at Kim Bidulf, that's B-I-D-D-U-L-P-H, or leave a comment under the podcast. I'd love to hear from you. For now, though, we are still UK-based, and I'm talking to my guest, more on her in a minute, about Kathleen Fiddler's Boy with the Bronze Axe, which is set at Scarabray on Orkney around around about 2500 BC. My guest today is Caroline Wickham-Jones. Hello. Hello there. Thank you very much for joining me, and um, I see that you're suffering from a cold the same as I am. Yes, I'm afraid so. I hope I'm not going to be coughing my way through this, but um, yeah, it's winter, we get colds. I guess they got colds in the Neolithic too. I guess so. <laughs> um, it, yes, we can, we'll can. we try, dear listeners, to mute our coughing if we if that comes up at some point. I'm here drinking a lem sip as we speak. Um <laughs> So, Caroline, we have talked before. It was really nice. Uh, thank you for, for coming back on. Um, last time we talked about what I think is still, sorry to all the other books that we've talked about, but it, Margaret Elphinstone's The Gathering Night is just so beautiful, isn't it? Yes. I mean, well, obviously I'm biased, but, uh, <laughs> but there's a lot of good other books out there as well. So it's nice to, you know, have the opportunity to talk about others too. It is, yes. Yeah, you helped her with her research, didn't you? Yes, I did, yes. Yeah, so you can go back and listen to that one. It's one of our very early ones. I think, I can't remember what episode it is, maybe three or four or something like that, but very, very good. Um, but today we're talking about, we're going a bit further north, because that was mostly set in the Western Isles, wasn't it? So we're up in Orkney. Um, you are um, a bit of a specialist in this area, aren't you? Yes, well, I mean, as we speak, I'm living in Orkney. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I, I would normally say that I have fabulous views out over sea and islands and all the um, northern Orkney landscape. But actually, today it's raining hard. And sadly, the sea is shrouded in a sort of silver mist. But um, that's Oh, just... it sounds very atmospheric. It is, yes. Luckily, I'm indoors. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so... Um... You're a research associate at the University of Aberdeen, um, but also doing freelance stuff now, aren't you, as a as an archaeologist? Yes, I uh, spent a few years lecturing at, for the University of Aberdeen, mm-hmm. and now I'm doing more of my my own work and perhaps working. Um, well, I, you know, at my own pace to different priorities. I suppose I, m- I miss the students, but um, I don't miss university bureaucracy. But <laughs> I've really got the best of all worlds because I've been able to keep my research association with the university. And so I'm involved with them in various research projects. Yes. That's really good. Um, are you involved in anything specific that you can tell us about at the moment? Well, with them, nothing in Orkney, but uh, so we're working on actually some really quite exciting sites to the west of Aberdeen along the River Dee, where we've got evidence for much earlier settlement 
in Scotland, going back perhaps even 13,000, 14,000 years ago. And um, wow. we're just waiting to hear on a grant application. So that's it's interesting because when I moved up to Orkney about 15 years ago, I thought I wouldn't be tempted away from Orkney again because Orkney is such a wonderful place to live and work. But mm. the uh, Mesolithic and Paleolithic archaeology of the River Dee has managed to... Um, get me to leave my my Northern Ireland home just occasionally. But most of the work that I do is involved up here in Orkney, where I'm involved in a, a sort of multi-institutional research project looking at the past landscape, really, and the way that it's changed since people first came to live in Orkney. So there's stuff on the River Dee then, it's late up a Paleolithic, and you always think of Scotland being completely covered in an ice sheet, don't you? Um, and, and nobody getting there until the end of the Ice Age. Um, so that's that's amazing stuff, really. What what does that mean about the settlement of Orkney? I mean, when, when does that happen? Well, it's really interesting, actually, and... Um, we're really changing the whole way that we look at the earliest settlement of Scotland. Perhaps the first thing that I would say is that, of course, just because there's an ice sheet doesn't mean that people are not living there. And I think when mm. I studied archaeology, we all had this idea that an ice sheet was a totally no-go area. But if you think about it, we know people around the world, or not around the world, but obviously in cold places, who live very mm. successfully in conjunction with ice. So, um, you know, just because there's ice doesn't mean there's nobody there. But of course, the other problem that comes is that where there is ice, the evidence will often be more difficult to find. Because if your archaeological sites are being laid down on ice or in areas that are being affected by ice, then they are not necessarily going to look like the sort of sites that we get elsewhere. But the other thing really with Scotland is that our whole view is perhaps changed by appreciation of the existence of Doggerland, which is the fact that uh, the British Isles were once part of the continent. They were joined on to the continental mm. landmass by this massive area of land, which we nowadays would call Doggerland and which is totally underwater. So if if you think about Orkney right at, towards the very end of the last ice age, 15, 14,000 years ago, you would still mm. have had to cross a channel of water to get to Orkney. And Orkney is indeed islands. Um, but there is a greater, much greater landmass to the south and east of Orkney, which is where the, the main body of the British Isles, if you like, is still at that time attached to the continental landmass. And we haven't really worked out the details of this. We do excitingly have a very few artefacts in Orkney, really just two or three, that are um, spear points of a type that suggests that there were hunting groups at least crossing Orkney, if not living here for long periods. We really know very, very little about that. I think you have to look at these, um, I was going to call them the, the great reindeer hunters of the yeah. Paleolithic. And these are the same sort of people that we're seeing penetrating into mainland Scotland. The main difference, perhaps, with mainland Scotland is that it's quite a mountainous area and Orkney isn't. So when they go into mainland Scotland, they're having to perhaps adapt their lives, adapt their way of living there, perhaps exploratory groups. When they go into Orkney, they're still exploring, but they're finding a landscape that they will be more familiar with, whether they're following herds, whether they're just looking to see what's over the horizon, we don't really know. But um, yeah. we do have evidence that people are getting up here right from this early period. Although, of course, our main um, settlement, main human activity in Orkney doesn't start till about 9,000 years ago with the arrival of the hunter-gatherers who are coming along the coast at the end of the last ice age and sort of moving mm. into um, areas that really hadn't been available for long-term settlement prior to that. Oh, that's so cool that it's, uh, it goes so far back. And you, as you say, people could be 
um, traveling across the ice really easily. I mean, there's there's the stuff from Creswell Crags, which has got what appear to be horse hunters um, going to and and staying in, and that's in Nottinghamshire, which I always thought was quite far north, you know. Uh, but I, I'm living down in Buckinghamshire at the moment, so that's why. <laughs> yes, I think our whole idea of this very early period and the earliest settlement of the UK. It's changing and it's going to change dramatically over the next 10 years. It's really a very exciting period to be interested in archaeology. And all I would really say is, you know, watch this space, follow the developments, because I think there's a a lot of new material going to be found. Yeah, it's fantastic. It's why I love prehistory. Um, there's always something new every week. Um, uh, but in Orkney, I mean, it is very, very well known around the world, isn't it? I mean, there was the recent, um, last year, a really a uh, couple of programmes about the archaeology of Orkney, focusing on the Neolithic, which is what we're, what's most famous. And that's what Kathleen Fiddler's book focuses on as well, even though it's called The Boy with the Bronze Axe. Um, it's actually set in the neolithic isn't it that when when the farmers had built quite permanent settlements. that's right yes so it's it's um set in a slightly more recent period amongst the first farmers that came to orkney and i, I would say that there was the um, bbc program which um as you mm. say came out last year and in fact just after christmas in early january uh, the Travel Channel Mm. um, had a programme which covered... I I haven't actually watched it yet. Terrible admission. But it covered... um, (laughs) Certainly they filmed at Scarabray um, a series called Expedition Unknown. And they too were looking at the links between the um, farming peoples of Orkney and things that were going on further south in the British Isles. So... um, that's, I think, broadcast in the UK and in the States, but um, people might like to watch that as well. On the Travel Channel, you say? On the Travel Channel. It's a series called Expedition Unknown. Cool. And I'm, it was quite early in the series. It's... Um, might be called no I can't remember what it's called it's about Stonehenge and Orkney anyway I will see if I can find a link to it and put it in the show notes under the podcast I can, I can send you a link yes oh thank you very much that's great um yes it's so it is it's very famous now I thought I mean obviously you you have written a um, couple of books on the Neolithic of Orkney um could you just kind of give us a, an overview of what uh, of the basics. Um, I mean, many people might have heard of Scarabray and seen pictures online. I haven't ever visited, which is terrible, something I've got to do. Um, uh, and yet I've, I've, you know, known about it for t- over 20 years. <laughs> so tell, tell us a bit about um, uh, Scara and the other big sites on, on Orkney. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think what makes the Neolithic of Orkney really special is that we have wonderful preservation up here uh, for reasons which I'll mention in a minute. People were building a lot of their um, structures out of stone. But also I think it's worth noting that if you kind of divide life into three, which is um, life or settlement, um, death, and then the bit in between, which is ceremony and things yeah. um very often when you look in archaeology we might have two of those three so you might have houses and you might have tombs or you might have ceremonial sites and tombs and things it's very unusual to get all three aspects of life mm-hmm. and up here in Orkney, we've got the houses we've got the tombs and we've got the ceremonial sites so we have a very complete picture of life in the Neolithic. We also have um, on all those sites a fabulous record of everyday objects. The material culture is very well preserved up here because the soils are slightly less acid. Mm. And so although people are making a lot of things out of bone and wood and things, they're kind of, um, you know, clutter, if you like, um, uh, in other places that might all dissolve away that might have long disappeared in the acid soils that we tend to have across much of the UK but here in Orkney it has survived and then of course we have the fact that um well there is an accident of geology means that Orkney stone breaks in a way that provides you with ready-made slabs for building and then although when the farmers first arrived in Orkney there was woodland here Mm. the woodland 
very quickly disappears, partly um, because people are opening up the landscape for farming and partly because of uh, environmental change that's going on at the time. So that by the time you get into certainly the second half of the Neolithic, there's really very little timber around for building houses and things. And so people, not surprisingly, turn to building out of stone. And that means that their structures have survived for us to look at. Mm. So we're really in a very privileged position because you can go and walk around the remains of houses that were built 5,000 years ago, and that's pretty amazing. It is amazing, yeah. I mean, just go, seeing that if you can kind of um, uh, go in with um, online you know 360 tours and things like that and look around all the houses and uh, and so on it's really good fun there's a number of good websites to look at the the sites i think it's also worth saying that that um i mentioned the the fact that the soils aren't acid and the geology and things that combination also provided very very fertile soils and it's really a gentle landscape with kind of easy access to the sea and things so that it meant that the farming communities when they arrived in Orkney and we know that the first farmers must have come over here in boats mm. um, they were able to pretty quickly to establish farms that were very productive we know that farming flourished crops flourished animals flourished and of course that meant that the communities they weren't perhaps under some of the stresses that they were elsewhere mm. communities size seems to have developed we also see through the neolithic an increase in complexity which has fascinated a lot of archaeologists people like colin richards looking at developments in society how that's reflected in things like changing styles in houses in we see some of the first village communities arising mm. things like that so you're actually seeing um quite a sophisticated society arising in a relatively short period of time. Fantastic. Well, we're going to talk a little bit more about um, the book after the break. Um, so just we're just going to take a couple of minutes. Uh, you listen to these messages and we'll be right back. The Archaeology Podcast Network has partnered with Tee Public to bring you some awesome gear that looks good, promotes archaeology, and puts a few pennies in our pockets so you can get free podcasts. Check out our designs at arcpodnet.com slash shop. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop. Hello, welcome back. Now, we've talked uh, quite generally about Orkney and what a great place it is um, for archaeologists. And it, it's a little bit of a um, a place of pilgrimage for many of us. The, uh, a pilgrimage I have yet to make. Um and um, the the amazing Neolithic archaeology and why it's so special. Now, in this book um, that we're talking about, it is a children's book. I, I would guess it's really for age about yeah, uh, seven to ten. Yes, that kind yeah. Of, yeah, I mean that's that's really the age you cut you guess in a way of the children who are the main characters in it. Um, so, the boy with the bronze axe by Kathleen Fiddler was written in 1968, so a while ago which will come up again later. And basically, um, it's about, uh, it starts with Callie, who is um, a, a girl who lives at Skara, um, and her little brother, Brocken, um, who is, oh yes, it says it says Brocken is six. I can't remember what it says. Callie is a little bit older. Um, and they go searching for limpets while their tide is out. But they go a little bit too far and they get surprised by the tide coming in. But luckily, there is a boy in a boat, a huge log, uh, hollowed out log boat, that kind of boat they've never seen before, um, who comes and happens to be there and is able to rescue them. Um now, Callie and he, the, the boy is called Tenko, who I think is a little bit older than Callie as well. Um, it speaks a slightly um, different dialect, but they can understand each other. And he describes how he has come to be out on the sea, coming to Orkney in this weird boat. There was a quarrel between our tribe and another one about the right to hunt in a certain place. There was fierce fighting. My father, the chieftain, was killed before my eyes. Most of my tribe were slain. Callie looked at him in pity. They tried to capture me, but I ran faster than they did and hid in a cave on the shore. At sunset, they gave up looking for me. In the darkness, I managed to reach my father's boat. I launched it and pulled away from the shore. 
I thought I would land further along the coast, but the wind blew strongly and carried me out to sea. And then Callie brings, they, they go back to the, to the shore where Callie and Brocken's parents are waiting um, anxiously to f- see them. Um, and Tenko is worried about whether or not he's going to be accepted at Skara, especially when, as he stumbles when he's in in exhaustion because he's been on the boat for a couple of days and nights um this shiny bronze axe falls out of his tunic and everyone sees it for the first time sees bronze for the very first time um yeah so then it's all about the relationships within Skara and who wants to get the bronze axe off him and how Tenko can fit in and that kind of thing so there you go that's um that's a, a pricey. Now, um, I think the first thing to, to maybe go into, uh, Caroline, is the uh, chronology of this. Yes. <laughs> because if you've got... Uh, when when does Skara get abandoned? Um, Skara Bray is abandoned in the <clears throat> um, late third millennium bc so around about 2200 i think sorry i'm um i can double check the dates but yes i mean it's that the village is in use for about five six hundred years yeah so is it what i was just going to say i mean it is interesting because the book obviously she's drawing on the wisdom as it was available at the time and so she's looking at a catastrophic abandonment of all the houses together which makes a very nice narrative and story for her book I think today we would see the villagers being abandoned in a more kind of piecemeal process Um, right but you know that shouldn't detract from the enjoyment of the book if you like Yes, and I think sometimes, I mean, chronology is one of the things that often gets concertinaed in um, in fiction books, isn't it? But, uh, uh, and it has to, in many ways, to make a good story. Um, so, but it's it's good to know that it's not quite as catastrophic as that. Um, so, around about two thousand two hundred, then, is it possible that bronze had arrived in Orkney? Um, you know, there's, it's really interesting. So we talk about the change to the Bronze Age. In actual fact, yeah. there's very little evidence of metal artefacts in the early centuries of what we, in our 21st century comfort, would call yeah. the Bronze Age. <laughs> so it's quite possible that... There were odd artefacts that appeared and appeared to be very alien to a local community that would come in and then be taken out. In many ways, exactly the scenario that she envisages, uh, Mm. which would leave no archaeological evidence. I think early on it would be much more copper than actually bronze there's a couple of there's a wee copper knife blade and things but in general people living in Orkney um they wouldn't kind of be aware that things had changed on the other hand the scenario that she presents where it is just one artifact and quite a different artifact I mean that is probably exactly what happened so that in general your average way of life just went on exactly the same as it had done in the, the Neolithic, in what we call the Stone Age. But um, there were around odd artefacts. The interesting thing that I like about the book is that she does talk about um, very different economies. So she gives us the impression mm, that Tenko's yeah. um, tribe, I think she calls them, but that this community in mainland Scotland are living mainly by hunting and don't actually do farming. And one assumes that that's yeah. over in the sort of northwest of Scotland. I think one's given that impression. That's where he's come from. And again, although I don't think today we've got any evidence for such kind of black and white that people are either 100% farmers or 100% hunters, nowadays we'd tend to see it um, a little bit more kind of subtle than that, a bit more graded. But it is really interesting that she chooses to write about a period where 
different communities are living in different ways. Because, of course, for us today in in the UK, we all have the same kind of basic economy. Um, so yeah. we've kind of lost that idea of people living in very different ways, not very far away from us. Yes, absolutely. I, I wonder, though, if it's part of the concertinering of the chronology again, it, thinking about how maybe earlier in the Neolithic there were um, communities that did continue to hunt whilst others took Absolutely. on Absolutely, and in fact, it, it, well, even in, not from, uh, there are red deer bones from Scarabray, um, and from mm. the Lynx Ooh. Northland, which is in Westry, which is essentially a village settlement very similar to Scarabray, they're definitely hunting yeah. red deer. And they're doing very strange things with those red deer. There's a deposit just outside the settlement where they've actually yeah. deposited, I think, seven red deer carcasses, which they hadn't taken any meat off. And the suggestion is that it has some kind of ceremonial significance or something. So, um, yeah. yes, I mean, you do have farmers who are hunting there's certainly red deer around in orkney which when she wrote the book the accepted view was that there weren't red deer in orkney and it has been quite a controversial um thing whether or not there were they were just sort of bringing in dead cuts of meat and things or whether but now um we would generally feel that the word deer here but i think yeah i mean the other yeah. interesting thing is this idea that it's the hunting community that have access to bronze, because, of course, one of the things about the very first um, metalsmiths is that one tends to think of them as being fairly mobile and travelling around, and that's something that we yeah. might conventionally associate more with people who are hunters than, rather than farmers. Um, so there is an awful lot that you could pick out and explore in the book with an adult audience, I'm not sure that children would be find that sort of thing quite as fascinating as I might. <laughs> yeah, I know this is a, it. There are there are some subtle things in there that you could really pick out how things have changed since 1968 in terms of the evidence that we have and the interpretation that we have. Um, interpretations, I should say, definitely plural. <laughs> um, but that that you can't really. It's it's too it. Um, too nuanced maybe for children whereas um, I, I, we talked about this before didn't we I think um, some schools I've I've seen using UG by Raymond Briggs and I do mention it several times on the podcast because I hate it it's a horrible book for teaching the stone age but but I've had teachers say to me yes but I can use it to teach them about their preconceptions and what is clearly wrong but there's a, not everybody uses that that way not, not all teachers I've come across do actually use it that way but I have had a couple of people say that because it's really, really I was obvious, say that you know. requires <laughs> quite a lot of understanding on the teacher's part, doesn't it? Um, yes. I think yes, it's interesting yeah. with um, The Boy with the Bronze Axe. I mean, the one thing that really stood out for me, well, two things. She gives a very good description, I think, of the physicality of the settlement and, yeah. um, you know, perhaps what it's like to be inside these small, this small space, these stone structures with other people. That sort of yeah. thing. I mean, I tend to find when I go into the um, there's a reconstructed house at the site. When you go in there with students, or when yeah. you look at the archaeological houses, people will say, "Oh, well, they're very small. You know, how could you possibly live in a space this big?" But actually, yeah. you can go into the reconstructed house with you know 15 or 20 students, and everybody fits in fine. You might not spend a lot of time there, yeah. but there are societies where people live in smaller spaces than we do. I mean, the space that we have become accustomed to that's a luxury of the 21st century oh absolutely yeah i i think you're right there is a there's a scene later on in the book where everybody is in one house and i was thinking to myself really could they all fit in but that's really interesting that you can i think i, I do love that yes that if she really brings those houses to life although it doesn't need that much really because you've got the the the, the bunks for the beds and you've got the central hearth and you've got a little pond to keep your fish and you've got your dresser and niches and things like that and it, it's amazing really um how 
you know, we down down here, down here in England, we just don't get that kind of that kind of um, detail about yeah. the houses. It's really unless you, yeah, you know, absolutely. you're very there very lucky. Remains of timber houses and from uh, from the period um, elsewhere across the right. UK, but. It's difficult to know whether our interpretations of them, how much they're influenced by what we find at Scarabray. I mean, they do tend to always talk about them being, oh, this is just like Scarabray, but in wood. But then if you didn't know about Scarabray, (laughs) maybe you would interpret it slightly differently. I think one thing, um, if I was writing about the houses today, I would try and bring out a little bit more the way in which you have certain ways living, certain norms that allow you to live in a space like that. So that if you look at groups that live in single spaces, like, for example, Mongolian yurts or, um, you know, teepee type structures, very often there are sort of areas that people can go into and areas that people can't. So guests entering might often always go to the right Mm -hmm. or or not pass in front of the fire. Or sometimes there are certain, um, you know, like older people might sleep or always on one side of the fire. And you often do have this dresser straight across uh, from the entrance, which is the first thing that you see. We call it a dresser because that's what it's always been called at Scarabray. But it has a perhaps a bit more significance than that because it is the, the sort of first impression. Um, there have been suggestions that it might be more of a sort of um, altar or ceremonial thing. There's lots of different things it could be, but you could, I mean, I think to call them rules about living makes them sound very um, dragonian. But even if you think about our houses today, there are ways that we live in our houses that they're not rules, but we all adhere to them. So if you go round mm. to a friend's house, you don't kind of go into her bedroom without, you know, asking her. Actually, we tend to even ask before we go to the bathroom in somebody else's house. So we still have spaces that are used in very specific yeah. ways. And they would have done this at, at Scarabray. And I think, you know, one could bring that out um, in a novel today, perhaps. That is, is perhaps some... Um, a way of using the space that wouldn't have been thought about in the the 1960s when the novel was written. Uh, Yeah, this is true. I guess... um... I think it's different in more modern books, like like Margaret Elphinstone's book. She does look at more at at um, evidence from from different groups of people around the world to bring into it and make it richer. Um, But this one is is very purely based on, as you say, those 1960s interpretations. the um one of the things she also mentions are the the carved stone balls yes, which are always so yes. fascinating for a lot of people as well um and uh, which um are sometimes found on the dresser well, is that I true? Don't is that know right um, they were actually found on the dresser were. it's difficult mm. because when scarbray was first unearthed it was in the 19th century and there was quite a lot of yeah. um what should we call it, um, rearrangement of the site or, or things going on that weren't perhaps very well recorded. But Scarabray certainly is very, very yeah. unusual because it's one of the only um, domestic sites where carved stone balls are found. When you find carved stone balls elsewhere in Scotland, they tend yeah. to be found out in the fields. Now, it may be that there was a Neolithic house there and the evidence for that has long gone or, not, you know, it's been ploughed away so that the carved stone that's left so Mm. that's the fact that we don't find them in domestic sites doesn't mean that they didn't occur in domestic sites but we do tend to think of them as a much more uncontexted find whereas at Scarabray and indeed now other sites in Orkney we do have carved stone balls from sites the the newly found site at Nessabroga which of course um, is a totally different type of site and was totally unknown when Kathleen Fiddler was writing, um, but would be very relevant, and I'm yeah, sure there are yeah. uh, novelists uh, writing new novels to incorporate that as we speak, but they've got quite a lot of carved stone balls. Carved stone balls are, are of course, yeah, you're right, they're a big enigma, they fascinate people, and it's really good to see them written into this novel so that she's picking up not just on the sites, yes. but also on the material culture. 
gets pottery too, doesn't she? Yeah, she does. Um, Lemba the potter, um, make it, yes, and, and goes into quite a lot of detail. Um, can I just read a little bit about her interpretation yeah, of the carved stone balls? So this is just before they go to the Ring of Brodger, actually, for a ceremony. Berno, who is um, Tenko's adopted father at Skara, uh, Berno came to the meeting place carrying six beautifully carved stone balls. These were the symbols of the sun belonging to the tribe of Skara. Some of them had been carved by men of the tribe long since dead, but two of them had been carved by Berno himself. Bono looked with pride at the last stone ball he had carved. The carving on it was so deep that the pattern stood out in spikes like a hedgehog. It had taken Bono a whole year to carve, sitting by his fire at nights. The spikes represented the rays of the sun. He carried the symbols to the waiting crowd. And so um, she she links it to um, a, a sun cult, which, of course, we sometimes talk about in the late Neolithic, um, and uh, and that they represent little suns. But there are so many different interpretations, aren't there? Yes, but I think if you're writing a novel, you've got to come off the fence and promote one. And the, the yeah, idea of a sun so. cult <laughs> links it to the, the big stone circles and things. It's brilliant. It's great. You know, that's what we use fiction for, to explore the kind of um, way in which... The, the the rather dry and dusty things that we find make sense in human terms. And she's doing that brilliantly with carved stone balls. Yeah, I think so. I think it's, it is a really good idea. I mean, there's lots of theories about them being, I don't know, like balls or... Uh, weapons um, or something like that, but the but um, yeah, yeah I like this interpretation. Exactly. Doesn't mean lots, to say it's of true, of course. But I mean, go. I don't have any problem. I don't really believe anymore in an archaeological truth. You know, when I studied, which was more or less back in the Stone Age, we were kind of taught that there was a right way to see the Neolithic and a wrong way. But now, you know, every if you read. <laughs> 10 books on Neolithic Scotland, you will come away with 10 very different ideas about Neolithic Scotland. They will obviously yeah. agree on some things, but they will have, you know, differing interpretations of other things. And so in some ways, every archaeologist produces their own picture of the past. And, you know, that's fiction just yeah. helps us to enrich that in many ways. So we're lucky that there are... Um, writers of good fiction like Kathleen Fiddler who are interested enough to explore that. Absolutely. Now, we're going to take another quick break. Um, when we come back, we're going to be um, maybe a little slightly bit more critical of um, Kathleen Fiddler, but only in the fact that she was writing at a specific time and some of the things that may be updated um, for the 21st century. This network is supported by our listeners. You can become a supporting member by going to arcpodnet.com slash members and signing up. As a supporting member, you have access to high quality downloads of each show and a discount at our online store and access to show hosts on a members only Slack team. For professional members, we'll have training shows and other special content offered throughout the year. Once again, go to arcpodnet.com slash members to support the network and get some great extras and swag in the process. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. Hello and welcome back again. Right, Caroline. So, um, so far, I mean, we do, I, I really love the book, actually. I do love the story. And I think it's, um, uh, it's very much about human relationships and how a stranger can come into a place and, um, and be accepted or not and things like that. But um, there are issues with the fact that it was, it was written so long ago um, and what, she, what Kathleen Fiddler was actually basing the story on, which is basically the early excavations um, of Gordon Child, really, isn't it? Yes. Mostly? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think it's hard to, um, or, you know, it kind of surprises one to remember that when she was writing, none of the recent work had taken place. So although yeah. through the 70s, there were excavations at Scarabray led from the National Museums of Scotland and things, none of that had happened when she was writing. So yeah. what she had to go on was largely Gordon Child's work. Which is the 30s, is that right? Yes, 20, 20s and, yes, 20s. 20s and 30s, 20s, right. Yeah. 
So, um, so you you particularly wanted to to say about how uh, some of the things, um, and I mean, obviously, we've talked a little bit about how um, they weren't necessarily just farmers, um, but were hunting as well, and the red deer on the island and stuff. And that landscape of the island, I um, is really important actually to get the feel of the place, isn't it? Yes, and I mean, she brings out very very well the island landscape and she talks about this fact that the children have never seen a big tree and in fact quite a lot is made in the novel of the um, lack of wood and their unfamiliarity with wood. I think um, one gets the impression that they're not even using wood for hafts and handles and so um, both at a kind of um, small scale i.e in the existence of wood or not and at a broader landscape scale i think that's really where for me um the novel comes over as most dated because um, and maybe it just shows our sort of preoccupations today but we're much more concerned with the environment and as archaeologists we're much more aware how the environment around Scarabray has changed dramatically. So, in fact, she mm. writes about the village as being right by the sea. And on the um, copy I have, which I'm not sure, it's a classic Kelpie, um, the picture on the front shows the village uh, right by the sea as it is today, when in actual fact we know that um, certainly when the village is built it's some distance from the sea and the sea has slowly yeah. eroded back and by the time the sea gets to being in close proximity to the site probably very few of the houses are still in occupation because what yeah. impact of the sea eroding back was that um, they get much more sort of salt spray and sand and things blowing onto their fields. So that interestingly, in the latter years of the settlement, so in the period which she's writing, there's very little evidence, for example, that the inhabitants were able to cultivate grain. Farming seems to have more or less stopped. And and there's a new publication going to come out maybe this year, maybe next year, I'm not sure when, but um, that does look at this. And this seems to be you know, one of the main reasons for abandonment, that life at Scarabray just gets increasingly difficult as it erodes back towards the site. Um, And this is one of the the sort of biggest changes, perhaps. So that for the children, the interesting thing about the boats, the log boats, I think although they wouldn't have known any trees of that stature in Orkney, they certainly would have been familiar with driftwood with large logs washed on the beach and that's something that she doesn't take into account at all but again it just reflects the changing nature of archaeology we have so many specialists today you have people doing phds on driftwood and its impact on prehistoric communities and things which didn't happen at all in the 60s so (laughs) writing a novel today you're deluged with information in a way that she wouldn't have had available but i think um, that you know the idea that they just wouldn't have known wood is something that um now we wouldn't tend to agree with um but there is a lot that one would agree with i mean one of the things that i particularly like is something which where she was almost going against accepted wisdom so for a long time people thought that scarabray was isolated and special but she doesn't promote that view and she talks about other communities and other people you know living in different places around Orkney and in many ways she's very prescient in that because at the time when it was written I don't think we were quite so aware of you know just how how many Neolithic settlement sites there were around Orkney. Yes. I mean, although when they do go to the Ring of Brodka to do their lovely sun ceremony, she doesn't talk about the nest, does she? Which, yeah. of course, um, as yeah. you say, she wouldn't have known yeah. about at yeah. all. <laughs> I don't know if it's, if it's is it um, occupied at the same time? Um, nest would have still been, yes, nest would have been up and running at that point. So, yes. And yeah. I mean, one would, you know, nowadays have to build in a sort of fairly complicated scenario um, to incorporate Ness into the narrative, which, of course, is something that archaeologists are trying to do. And I do know of at least a couple of novelists 
um, who are, you know, working on ideas to incorporate Ness into works of fiction. Cool. Do they come to you for all their ideas then? Some people will, yes. I mean, it is something... um, So quite often people come to Orkney and they're very inspired by the archaeology and they Mm. go away and um, want to research a novel and they will sort of then email people in Orkney, many of whom are quite busy, but luckily because I'm in a position of semi-retirement and because I've worked with other authors, it is something that I really enjoy doing and have now worked with several um, different people who are looking at different aspects, not just of Neolithic life, of other life as well, but in order to produce novels and works of fiction. Usually what I'm doing is just kind of trying to suggest reading for them or answer questions, that sort of thing. And you you mentioned um, a book to me whilst we were chatting before recording. Um, does, uh, that, Silver Skin, um, yes. Yeah, Silver Skin by Joan Lennon, yeah. which is very, very recent, isn't it? Maybe last year it yeah, was published or something? it's actually a couple of years ago now. But, I mean, in some ways it's, um, it's written for a slightly older audience. I think it's what we call young adult fiction. I'm not sure um, what that age group is. And um, I didn't have anything, you know, I didn't talk to Joan or anything, but I do really enjoy the novel. And in many ways it's looking at Scarabray in a more... Yeah, I mean, so she's taken uh, modern research and built it into a picture of life in the Neolithic. In some ways, it covers similar themes to um, Kathleen Fiddler's book, The Boy with the Bronze Axe, because it is looking at the arrival of somebody different into the community, how they perceive the community and how the community relates to them. But um, I would certainly recommend it as a good read, yeah. Yeah, I will put I'll put a link to that on yeah, on, in the show notes. Um, and I think I'm going to have to get hold of it. But it's it's more it's a uh, it's one of those ones where there's a time traveling person going into the past, Absolutely. isn't there? Which I always I don't know why I I, I have a I don't know if I like them as much as ones that are purely set in the past because when you... some people don't like that the book. For yeah. that reason. I would say he's an accidental time traveller. So in some ways, like Tenko in The Boy with the Bronze Axe, he is a, a, a teenager who's, as I remember it, um, living in the future, doing his homework and sort of researching some history project and accidentally goes back further in time than he intends to. So he's not right. a kind of shall we say, professional time traveller, and his observations are still made with an element of innocence and, indeed, anxiety in the same way that um, Tenko's are in The Boy with the Bronze Axe. But equally, yes, I mean, it is a device. The device of the the time traveller is one that irritates a lot of people. (laughs) Well, I don't know. I'll give it a go. It does sound very interesting. I, I just wonder, it's a little bit like that TV show, 10,000 BC, where they say, can modern people live in the wilderness and and feed themselves? And the, the, the answer is no, because nobody they don't put anybody in there who has any skills. And it's, um, I think, with Tenko um, in The Boy with the Bronze Axe, at least he has, I mean, he doesn't know how to make bronze, sadly, but at least he has lots of, of skills like hunting and things that he can bring to, um, to the community as well and I think it's quite good to give that person a little bit of agency so that they're not a victim of of, like like a time traveler basically is aren't they I mean it's not totally alien to him in the way that um silver skin it's totally alien and and not it almost makes makes the neolithic see when it's written like that it makes the neolithic seems seem more weird as well doesn't it because it's this person's reaction to this really weird time yeah that's very true yes yeah and we don't i mean that's one of the things i like i tried i tried to get over a lot of the time uh i just wonder i know this sounds a bit this will be a bit rude especially to say it to you but a place like Orkney, a little bit like Chapel Hayek, is it's is it overstudied? Is it overwritten about? Is it you know if there are a couple of novels coming out soon that we know of a few already, you know, should maybe 
I some some research could be focused somewhere else. I, Novels focused somewhere else. Yeah, that's there's not so. It's a very good you know. question, and of course, one that lots of archaeologists living elsewhere in Scotland would argue that you know enough money <laughs> has gone to researching Orkney, and we should be looking elsewhere. It's a very also a very difficult question because if the data is genuinely there then we want to kind of make the most of it and of course the archaeology in Orkney is threatened just like archaeology is elsewhere so you know we have a duty to kind of um do right by it if you like um yeah equally yes I mean I've made a list for a paper I'm writing of all the novels set around Scarabray and there's a lot you know there's about eight Ooh. Which is really surprising. Could you? Could we have that list for the blog yes, for the for the podcast? That. Yes, thank you. I, I would That'd say um, some are better than others. Can I yeah. charitably say so? Please don't take it as a must-read reading list. But it's just interesting how much Scarabray, as you say, like Chatelhuyuk, has um, inspired people to you know to produce. Um, novels and indeed how it inspires archaeologists to go on working because I mean Orkney certainly um, in Scotland must have the highest number of archaeologists sort of for the area outside of the main cities and many of them are making a living as I do from you know living and working largely on Orkney archaeology and indeed archaeology is one of the big tourist attractions in Orkney it's why many people come here yeah Um, but of course, that is because it is spectacular. You know, there's something about going to Scarabray that you're not going to get just looking over a muddy field where an archaeologist will say, these are post holes and there was once a site yeah. here. Um, although you can now get over that with things like digital reconstruction and things, but there is still something about seeing physical remains that attracts us all. And whether we like it or not, Orkney has them, you know, in <laughs> Yes, abundance. it really does. I mean, I, I completely understand the the fascination. And as you say, it's one of those places, what you said at the beginning is where it's got everything. It's got, it's got the domestic and yeah. it's got ceremonial and it's got um, uh, funereal yeah, um, remains. So you see, see quite a, a lot of the, um, uh, of the life of people who live there, which is just, it is very unusual because down down south here, we don't get a lot of the domestic at all. Um, and we have the people. I mean, there's a lot of skeletal mm. material from Orkney. I mean, not every tomb um, has skeletons surviving within it because some tombs were robbed out long ago and in some places uh, material has just, um, you know, gone. But a lot of them do have um skeletons and things and of course that then is a great source of um study looking at isotopes for diet and looking at disease and now Mm. dna and things like that um there seem to be you know in fact if anything more and more projects um there's the recent redating project that alistair whittle and alison sheridan and people have been involved with looking not just at orkney but at um dates for the neolithic and of course orkney is one of the best places to get dates for mm, the neolithic absolutely um is that i mean with going back to the book just to just to finish off the yeah. one of the other things that's really nice that she describes are how people on orkney are not isolated just it, even just on the islands of of the orkney archipelago but also um, have those far-reaching links to maybe the Shetlands and the um, uh, and yeah. the mainland as well, and from from the DNA and from the um, stable isotope analysis that's that's happening a lot more recently. There's quite a lot of uh, things coming up about how linked everybody is and how mobile. How not mo- you know not not kind of everyday mobility, but they travels quite a lot throughout prehistory um so that's quite quite nice and i wonder whether although she does make those relationships she says that the that um they're quite new to the people on orkney but do you think that they were always well aware of what was going on elsewhere 
Well, of course, the um, recent research does suggest that Orkney is certainly linked into what's going on in mainland Britain and probably extending links as far south as the, the Wessex area and Stonehenge. So um, that's, you know, very interesting and in a way kind of goes against our preconceptions of the Neolithic as perhaps slightly more insular communities. It's interesting that there is actually in the Neolithic very, very little evidence for contact with Shetland. There's very little evidence in Shetland that they um, had access to Orkney or indeed the right. south. And there's very little Shetland material in Orkney, yeah. very little. Um, yeah. But that does seem to change once you get more into the Bronze Age. And my um, sort of hunch is that uh, once you get into the Bronze Age, people are needing raw materials that come from the continent. And so... In the in England, in the kind of Stonehenge area, then they're tending to look east and west for sources of metals mm. and things. And so yeah. this north-south um, connection tends to diminish. And it does seem to be at that point that people in Orkney who are maybe finding that the, the sort of those further south are less interested in Orcadian connections, or maybe they're just expanding anyway. We, you know, I mean, who knows? But they do, then we start to get... Um, goods imported from Shetland, we start to see steatite and things coming down that must be being brought oh. down from the north. So in some ways, um, the end of her book where they're sort of saying, oh, we believe there are islands further north and um, maybe we should go and explore those, you know, that is, you know, actually not um, perhaps dissimilar to our thoughts of today cool. that people's horizons were beginning to change and things. Yes, uh, that's really interesting. I, I love it when when authors are prescient in that way, whether they, you know, they intended it to be or not. <laughs> yes, exactly. I mean, I think one thing, her boat technology is quite primitive. And I think now we would um, see in the Neolithic as them having access to more sophisticated boats. I mean, certainly by the Bronze Age, there are very sophisticated boats that have been excavated mm. in England. We haven't got any Neolithic boats in Orkney, but there are uh, rock art sites, for example, in Scandinavia that show quite sophisticated Neolithic boats. So while I'm pretty certain that the journey to Shetland in a log boat would be... Um, almost impossible even a, uh, even I, two log boats linked together as a catamaran even, yes i don't know maybe two log boats linked together which yeah. she does bring in actually doesn't she yes but i think they would have had access possibly i mean even the, the bbc made a sort of very primitive boat and sailed it across the Pentland firth but even that i thought you know, we do have suggestions that marine technology, maritime technology, was a bit more sophisticated than yeah, that at yeah, this absolutely. period. And of course, they'd also been able to read the waves and and you know all the kind of indications of um, you know the sea and things. So also, they will know when it's safe to go out and things like that. Yeah, they would know it so much better, wouldn't they? Yeah. Cool. Well. Sadly, we could go on forever, but sadly, um, it is time to stop. Um, thank you so much, Caroline, for talking to me about this book. I hope people do go out and get it because it's, it's really, really good fun. But now you do know about how some of the interpretations of Orkney have changed over the years. Um, so I'm going to put on the uh, podcast um, links to your website, Caroline, and... Sure, and to your books as well. Um, so you, the the big one is Between the Wind and the Water, which is um, an overview of the Neolithic of Orkney. So I'll definitely put a link to that on, on the show notes. Excellent. So thank you so much. Thanks very much. That was brilliant. I enjoyed it. Yeah, me too. Thank you. So thank you for listening, folks. Um, hope you enjoyed that one. Uh, keep listening to the podcast. And next month, we are going to be talking about the film from the creators of Shaun the Sheep, Early Man, Sick. Now that's S-I-C, not S-I-C-K, obviously. Um, it looks really funny. I haven't seen it yet. I'm going to hopefully see it soon this weekend. Um, and then I'm hoping to talk to James Dilley, who is himself often an early man, um, and Erin Kavner, 
um, to talk about the uh, the archaeology behind it, if there is any, and the idea about how we depict people um, from the Stone Age and the Bronze Age. Um, so it should be, but of course it's all in a great spirit of fun. There's no point in taking it too seriously. Um, so that should be quite a good one. And then after that, I really have got to get the Roll Right Stones people um, onto the podcast. So hopefully that will be uh, for March. All right then. If you haven't listened to any of ours before, there is a back catalogue of 22 episodes. So do go and listen. Or listen to the hundreds of other podcasts available on uh, the Archaeology Podcast Network. Thanks very much. This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.